Job has been a great book, hasn't it? Uh, teaching us to live wisely in the face of suffering. Let's commit ourselves to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of the book of Job. We thank you that it teaches us how to be wise in all the circumstances of life. We pray for each person in our congregation. Please help us to know this wisdom, to fear you and to shun evil in all circumstances, no matter what our suffering. We pray again particularly for those who are sick. We think of those who are recovering from operations, Melva Jingle and Joan Morgan. We pray, Heavenly Father, for them and for us all, that we would fear you, shun evil, knowing your greatness, and knowing that the future in the Lord Jesus Christ will be one of great blessing. We pray in his name. Amen. We have come to the final in our series on the book of Job, and wanted us to begin by thinking back over where we've been. And on the overhead here, you can see an outline of the book. You may remember that we looked at this outline at the start of our series. So let's have another look at it now and see if we understand things a little bit better. First, there is the prologue. In the prologue, we're introduced to the man Job. Job is a righteous man, a godly man, and God has blessed him. He's extremely wealthy. He has ten children. But it doesn't stay that way. In the prologue, the author of the book takes us into heaven. He shows us God and his angels. And we hear a dispute between God and Satan. God points out that Job is a righteous man. But Satan says, God, Job is only righteous because you bless him. Job is just being a shrewd businessman. He's saying, God, you're not worthy in and of yourself of uh, the love and trust of people. You have to buy your friends, so to speak. Uh, Satan challenges God. He says, take away what Job has and he will curse you to your face. It's a profound challenge to God's glory. If it is true, then God is a fool. He is pleased with people who are just using him. If it is true, then human religion is no more than just selfishness by another name. If what Satan says is true, then loving, sincere relationships between God and people are simply impossible. And so... God allows Satan to take everything away from Job. His wealth is taken away, his children are killed, and ultimately Job himself is struck down with sickness. But Job proves Satan wrong. He keeps on loving and serving God. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. That's the prologue. In the next section, from, verses, from chapters 3 to 27, three friends come to uh, comfort and give their advice to Job. And their advice is pretty simple. They say, Job, God is just. He would never cause an innocent person to suffer. Therefore, Job, you must have sinned. 
And so what you need to do is this. You need to repent of your sin. And then God will restore you. But Job denies it. He says, no, 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 no. I am innocent. I haven't done anything to deserve my suffering. And as his friends push him further and further and further into a corner, he even goes so far as to challenge God's justice. He says, chapter 19, verse 5, If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me. The speeches go round and round in circles. They go on and on and on. Everyone gets crankier and crankier, but nothing gets solved. Then in chapter 28, the author inserts a poem. A poem that actually is the key to understanding the point of the whole book. It's a poem about wisdom. And the poem says that man cannot attain true wisdom. You can do what Job and his friends have been doing on and on and on forever. You can keep talking round and round in circles, but it's not going to get you anywhere. True wisdom is just not available to humans here on earth. Only God has true wisdom. And God says, if we want to be wise, what we need to do is trust him. We need to be like what Job was like back in chapter 1. We need to fear God and shun evil, even if he does take everything away, even if we don't know why. Chapter 28 and verse 28 says, God said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. In chapters 29 to 31, Job summarises his speeches and rests his case. He challenges God. He calls on God to vindicate him. He says, God, I'm innocent and you know it. He says, chapter 31, verse 35, I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Then in chapters 32 to 37, a bloke called Elihu jumps up and starts speaking. And and what he does is he effectively summarises the cases of Job's three friends. He still claims, Job, you are sinful, you need to repent. And it's at this point, as we saw last week, that God finally speaks to Job. But I don't know about you, in some ways it's a little bit frustrating because God doesn't tell Job the answer. He doesn't tell Job what we've known since the beginning. He doesn't tell Job about what happened with Satan. He doesn't tell Job why he's suffering. Instead, God says to Job, Job, you are way too ignorant to challenge me. And you're way too weak to challenge me. And he says, Job, don't you question my justice. I don't owe anyone anything. I can justly do whatever I want with whoever I want. Chapter 41 and verse 10, God says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God doesn't answer Job's questions. Instead, he calls upon Job to trust him. And one of the more traumatic things I've had to do as a dad is to take my baby sons to the doctor to get them inoculated. The feeling of dread starts even before you get to the doctor. Uh, You pick up this tiny little creature, put him in the car, drive to the doctors. You sit there in the waiting room and all along the child is blissfully unaware. 
smiling and gurgling and laughing with those trusting eyes looking up at you. You take them in to see the nice doctor. The child is still happy and trusting, gives the doctor a lovely smile. And then while you physically hold your own child down, the doctor sticks not one, but two massive needles into him. The look on their face is just terrible. First, there's the look of absolute wide-eyed shock. It's like, how could you do this to me? Then immediately following is the scream of pain and anger. And then you go through it all again with the second needle. It is terrible. And it's not like you can explain yourself to a six-month-old, is it? You can't explain the good reasons for what you were doing. No point giving the six-month-old a lecture on the nature of infectious diseases and their history in humanity and the value of inoculations. It's way beyond them. All you can do is just be there, cuddle them, love them, and all they can do is trust you. They can't understand. They can't understand why you've done what you've done. They just have to trust you. God doesn't try to explain to Job why he's suffering. He doesn't have to explain to us why he's suffering. There's no way we could cope with it anyway. We're not smart enough. We're not powerful enough to challenge God. It's not appropriate for Job to demand an explanation from God. He's too ignorant. He's too weak. What God wants is for Job to trust him. And so God demonstrates that he's all-knowing. He demonstrates that he's all-powerful. He demonstrates to Job, Job, I am far more in control of this universe than you could ever even imagine. You don't need to know why you're suffering. You need true wisdom, Job. You need to keep on fearing me and shunning evil. And in response, Job repents. He says, oh, look, God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for my ignorant and inappropriate challenge to you. I'm sorry for saying you are unjust. I take back my complaints. And he goes back to where he was in chapters 1 and 2, back to the position of true wisdom. He doesn't need to know all the answers. He's willing to be a child who trusts his father. He's willing to fear and obey God no matter what. And that brings us to the epilogue. Our passage for today. I told you we'd get there. Uh, in the first part of the epilogue, God speaks to Job's three friends and he tells them what we have known since chapter one. He tells them, Guys, you were wrong. Job hadn't sinned, Job was innocent. I wasn't punishing him, I wasn't warning him. You spoke wrongly about me. Chapter 42 and verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. They spoke wrongly, but God is willing to forgive them and he does it in a nice way. He does it in a way that also re-establishes relationship between Job and his friends. Job, who acted as a priest for his children, remember, offering sacrifices for them at the beginning, is now called on to pray for his friends. Uh, verse 8. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer 
and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job's friends are wrong. Job was innocent all along. He wasn't suffering for his sin. And so we're reminded again. This world is not a closed system. Sin does not always lead to suffering. Righteousness does not always lead to reward. The the connection between action and consequence is not 100%. Sinful people, wicked people are sometimes blessed. Righteous people sometimes suffer. Job proves that. And that means, going all the way back to the beginning, that Satan is wrong. People don't just love God because they get blessed. If cause and effect were strictly tied, then religion would be about good business sense. Do good, get good. But it's not. Some people love and obey God even though they don't get blessed. Some people like Job. Now, in some ways, that would be a very neat place to end the book. As a person who prefers foreign movies to Hollywood movies, I think this is the place I'd end the book. Uh, Job has been vindicated. His relationship with God is back on track. And his relationship with his friends is back on track. Um, But that's not where the book ends. Uh, God doesn't leave Job on his bed of dust and ashes. In the last part of chapter 42, God heals and restores Job. In fact, he gives him double what he had before. Chapter 42 and verse 7. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. In the end, Job's righteousness was rewarded. God did bless him. In the next verses, we see how it happened. His friends and family come together and and start him off with some presents. Verse 11. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who'd known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Then we're told how much God gave to Job. Double the number of sheep, double the number of camels, double the number of oxen, double the number of donkeys. Uh, Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. And then interestingly, he gives Job the same number of children, 10 children. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Why not double the amount of children? My guess is Job has got double the amount of children. He's got 10 in heaven and 10 on earth. We then hear about uh, how beautiful Job's daughters were. And we find out that Job was so rich, he could give them an inheritance as well as their seven brothers. A bit like uh, I was told about Warren Buffett the other day, the second richest man in the world. Apparently Warren Buffett is so rich that he's going to give something like 99% of his wealth away. And yet he's still giving all his children an inheritance so big that they will never manage to spend it all. Job is so rich that he can divide his inheritance among all his seven sons and among his daughters as well. Verse 15. Nowhere in the land where they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And so Job dies. A righteous man under the blessing of God. Verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years. 
He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Well, it's a happy ending, especially if you like Hollywood. But it's not a corny ending. This, actually, this ending is actually very, very important in the mind of the author. Because what the author is doing, he is balancing the point of his book. This book has made clear that sin does not necessarily lead to suffering. It's made clear that righteousness does not necessarily lead to blessing. The strict connection between action and consequence is broken. And we've been called, love and obey God for who he is, even if it doesn't pay. But you don't want to go overboard with that. Because in the final analysis, God is just. He's not going to tolerate the broken connection between action and consequence forever. Here on earth, sin might not lead to suffering. Here on earth, righteousness might not lead to blessing. But it's not always going to be that way. The day will come when God will judge. The day will come when God will put all wrongs right. The day will come when sin will be fully and finally punished. The day will come when righteousness will be rewarded. The author wants us to know this. And so, in the book, he tells us about how Job did eventually get blessed, how God did come through in the end, how righteousness was ultimately rewarded, how Job ended up blessed and prosperous. But I've got to say, by the end of Job, I'm still not convinced. I'm not convinced this proves God's final justice at all. It might be all right for Job. But the fact is, not all the Jobs of this world have a happy ending, do they? This world is full of godly people who end up dead in poverty and disgrace. This world is full of wicked people who die peacefully in their sleep, surrounded by their loved ones, with all of their ill-gotten gains intact. If we just stay with Job, I don't think the case for God's final justice has been proved at all. Because the simple fact is, here on earth, not everyone gets vindicated like Job did. Like all of the Old Testament, this screams for culmination. It screams for fulfilment. And of course we know where it comes, don't we? The Bible takes us to one greater than Job. Uh, Jesus was even more righteous than Job, perfectly without sin. He trusted and obeyed God to the full. And Jesus suffered even more than Job. He gave up heaven to come to earth, tempted by the devil, deserted by his friends. And no happy ending for Jesus. Unlike Job, Jesus ends up dying alone, in agony, under the very curse of God. But as you and I know, this world, this life, this earth, was not the end of the story. Jesus was vindicated, not on this side of death, but beyond death. God raised him to life, seated in his right hand. Jesus will return and God says, I have now set a day when I will judge the world with justice by the man I have appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the clue we need. No. 
we won't necessarily see justice on this side of death. We won't see necessarily vindication in this life like Job did. But in Jesus we see that this life is not all there is. Jesus has been vindicated in resurrection. And that is our great hope. Because through Jesus, God has made great promises to you and to me. He's promised that he will vindicate everyone who relies on Jesus. Not necessarily in this life, but certainly when Jesus returns. The day will come when God will set everything right. If you are God's person, the day will come when your suffering will be over. When you will be blessed beyond your imagining. Forever. As the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it's there on your outline. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, we don't want to undermine the point of this book. God is still worthy of our love and obedience purely because of who he is. We ought to love God even if he never gives us anything. But this is good to know, isn't it? The fact is, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. In the end, God will bless his people. And so, it's worth persevering. Never give up. No matter what, fear and obey God. Because in the end, we'll see that it was worth it. A gentleman, Jim Corbett, was heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He was once asked the secret of his success, and this is what he said. Fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the centre of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding, when your eyes are black, when you're so tired that you wish your opponent would just crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Because the man who fights one more round is never whipped. Good advice for Christians. Fight one more round. Keep on trusting God no matter what. He's worth it. And the day is going to come when the bell will ring. Or better, the trumpet will sound. The Lord shall descend. And God will bless his people. There in James, again in your outline, you've heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. You too be patient. Stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Well, it's been a good book, don't you think? This book of Job gives us wisdom. We now know what we don't know, what we can't know. In most circumstances, we can't know why we suffer. But we do know this. God is worthy of our trust. It's worth fearing him. It's worth turning away from evil. Even if we lose everything, he is worth it. And the day will come when he will bless
Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are worthy of our praise. You are the great and mighty God. You are the God who has demonstrated your love, your holiness, your justice, your wisdom, your perfection in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious God, we pray that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be, would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would love you and trust you in all the circumstances of our lives. We thank you for the perseverance of Job. Thank you that we have seen what you finally brought about. Help us too to be patient and stand firm, knowing that the Lord's coming is near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.